I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hi, I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your, Your Angry, Angry Neighborhood, Neighborhood Feminist. Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspectives. And that's what's up. That's what's up. And we are sorry that we are late to Black History Month. Yes. Okay? Everything got kind of like pushed a week. And Black History Month is always the shortest month of the year. So it kind of sucks that we pushed it. But I feel like you and I will still give the four weeks it deserves. We I haven't talked so. about it, but like, yes. we're still going to give it the four weeks it deserves. Yeah, I think this has happened to us before. It always, we well, typically what we would do is we would do a black feminist fave the last week to also go into Women's History Month. Yes. But we are not doing that this time. We had another topic that we were going to do. Um, I <laughs> way overbooked myself and overworked myself this week and could not get efficient proper research done on that topic and so we decided to do another feminist favorites this week to kind of mix it up a little bit for what we were probably planning on doing but I'm sure we will have it all worked out by the end of the month (laughs) yeah oh definitely like the the one we were going to do this week we will do next week it's just that sometimes those weeks are like that like you have really busy work weeks you know got a lot of stuff going on yes Um, but the topics that deserve a lot of attention and need a lot of 
maybe cross research, multiple websites, multiple sources. Yeah. It does take more time. So yeah. we are going to be giving you the black feminist faves first to yeah. kick off our Black History Month on the show. Which I always love these anyway. So these well, are Well, you fun all for know me. that they're our favorites. Yeah, they're a good time for me. Uh, so I go first this week and I wanted to talk about somebody who I feel like a lot of people know about. I definitely knew about this person. I did this person for like a report whenever I was in like elementary school. Right. But that was an elementary school report. So it was like, what, like three paragraphs. Right, right? exactly. Hitting all the high notes, not really getting into the nitty gritty about this person's life. But imagine, like, I would love to see, like, a third grader do some, like, like some feminist fave that we've done that's like not a squeaky clean life you know something like that Shulamith yes that's that's a perfect example I want to see like a third grader give a report on Shulamith Firestone that'll be your child when your child's in school you know (laughs) I'm betting on it the teachers are like we need to call you into the office like um Um, your child burned a bra as part of their demonstration today we don't allow pyrotechnics in the school well I thought it was a great idea it's she was demonstrating what it was. Freedom of expression. Right? Uh, but today I'm going to be talking about Madam C.J. Walker. Oh, yes. yes. The first black woman millionaire in America. So Madam C.J. Walker was born Sarah Breedlove on December 23rd, 1867. Her parents, Owen and Minerva, were Louisiana sharecroppers who had been born into slavery. So Sarah was their fifth child, and she was the first of her family to be born free after the Emancipation Proclamation Wow! in Louisiana. Like, all of her siblings were born into slavery. Like, that's... When you see where she ends up, it's such a wild thing to think about. Yeah. And also, um, spoiler alert, like, she doesn't live to great old age. Like, you know, so it's insane the amount of stuff she gets done in a short amount of time yes yeah or maybe another one of those where she propels you know because like sometimes like with wilma mankiller and like people like that like sometimes you just it's like it just keeps going and going and going and then they did this and then they did this for her it's just the sheer amount of distance she traveled from like in a short amount of time right sharecroppers in louisiana born enslaved her parents were born enslaved to being the first black woman millionaire in in america you know um her mother died in 1872 likely from cholera wow so she was really young when her mother passed very young and then her father remarried pretty much right away but died a year later oh my goodness yeah so she was orphaned by the age of seven. Oh my gosh and her life at this point is a bit of a blur there's not a lot about it like she definitely spoke about the fact that she was orphaned at seven years old but doesn't really talk a whole lot about what her life was like at that period but we can imagine probably not great I um, mean think about being seven years old and losing your parents and being displaced and you know, I don't know what the situation would be like back then, but I'm assuming worse than it is today. She's got all these siblings. I'm sure she was torn apart from her siblings. Yeah. I'm sure it was very traumatic. In the newly emancipated South. As a young black girl. Yes. So she's in Louisiana in the years following the Civil War, like early reconstruction. Where did she go? So I don't know where she went uh, for three years after her 
her parents died. Oh my gosh. I don't know if she stayed with her father's new wife. Or if there was like maybe some family that could take them in or something. But also if you're coming from a history of enslaved people, where are you going to go? You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not like you've got an uncle with a huge house somewhere. You know what I mean? Like it's a different it's, it's very difficult. I mean, and like this part of her story reminds me so much of my grandma. My grandma didn't talk a lot about what her early childhood was like, but similar situation, like her mother passed away when she was very young mm-hmm. and she was the oldest of her siblings. Oh, that's a lot of responsibility. Yeah. And so she basically at like 10 was having to take care of the siblings and wow. eventually they got taken in by family in California. But like, yeah, I mean, that's it's a lot of work. A really tough situation, no matter what. But this time period specifically, right. with very little resources and money, and well, and I feel like whenever there's a lot of tragedy that happens, whether it be a death or something else, when a child is young, especially losing a parent, I think that that forces you into an adult world that you're not ready for. Oh yeah, I mean, and that's a lot of her childhood. Yeah. Like, unfortunately, it doesn't really sound like she got to be a child very much throughout yeah. her childhood. Um, at the age of 10, she moved to Vicksburg, Mississippi, where she lived with Lavinia, who was her sister, and her brother-in-law, Jesse Powell. She started working as a child as a domestic servant at the age of 10. So she <laughs> was off to work, yeah. you know, just... What a time. What a time. Actually, I think my dad's first job was when he was eight as a caddy on a golf course. Jeez. Stop. Stop it. Stop it. His mom was a drug addict. He had to eat. Stop making children work. Right? The only formal education she ever had was three months of literacy lessons, which she learned at Sunday school at a church she attended as a child. So Three months. Three months is the only formal education she had. Uh, life at home with Sarah's sister and brother-in-law was not a happy one. Her brother-in-law, Jesse Powell, was physically abusive. And in 1882, at the age of 14, he forced Sarah to marry 22-year-old Moses McWilliams. 14. What the fuck? It's awful. And like, I hate people were like, oh, it was a different time. It was so f-. I was like, no, this is absolutely disgusting that would have raised eyebrows at the time like a 14 year old so i i think it would have i truly hope so in june of 1885 at the age of 17 sarah would give birth to her only child a daughter she named alila oh my gosh 17 yeah and your only child too wow yeah uh, not a whole lot is known about her marriage to Moses, but from what I've been able to find, it seemed to be tumultuous at best and profoundly unhappy at worst. Well, I mean, let's talk about power dynamics here. Right. When it comes to somebody so much older and an actual child. Yeah. And again, it doesn't seem like it was really her choice. Like this wasn't. wasn't like a love match. It wasn't like a love marriage. No. And it's not giving her husband any reason to have to treat her well, well if he doesn't want to. Right. Uh, In 1887, when Sarah was 20, Moses died, leaving Sarah a young widow and single parent. Bye. Yeah. I mean, and it's interesting because Madam C.J. Walker, I feel like, has been talked about so much. Like, she is a known figure. Yeah. But a lot of the details about her life in the different resources that I was reading tell, like, have different information. Like, some say that Moses left her and her daughter and more of them say he died some say that he was lynched but then there are others that say there's no actual proof of that so it's just either way at the age of 20 her marriage to moses is over bye 
She took two-year-old Alila and moved to St. Louis to be closer to her brothers at this point. So Sarah built a life for herself there, balancing work as a laundress during the day and attending night school in the evenings. As a laundress, she made approximately a dollar a day, but was determined to save money to provide an education for her daughter. She found a community singing in the choir at St. Paul African Methodist Episcopal Church and became active in the National Association of Colored Women. Things were looking up for her, but after her two brothers died, yes, both of them, like, what the fuck at is around in the, water? the same time, I don't know, uh, but after they died, Sarah fell on hard times financially because she was living with them. Yeah. Looking to ease some of her burdens, she married again, this time to a laundry worker named John Davis in 1894. This marriage was also rocky, and Sarah eventually left him in 1903. Okay. Sarah was constantly looking for ways to advance herself and her daughter, and when she first came to St. Louis, she suffered really severe dandruff and other scalp ailments, including baldness due to skin disorders and the application of harsh products to to cleanse hair and clothes. Like, she she didn't have time to grow up. She didn't learn about, like hygiene and honestly it wasn't a huge priority to like take good care of yourself so the same kind of like harsh chemicals that you'd be using to wash your clothes is the same thing that people would be using to wash their hair and things like that her brothers who had both been barbers taught her about hygiene and hair care and she took that information with her into her adult life and around the time of the world's fair in st louis in 1904 she became a commission agent selling products for annie malone who was an african-american hair care entrepreneur and owner of the poro company Mm. so sales for the company at the exposition were disappointing because the market largely ignored African-American consumers. So right. there weren't enough black people attending the World Fair to right. buy the product. And it does seem kind of, and again, I don't know anything about this woman, Annie Malone. I, I mean, she was an entrepreneur. She did fairly well for herself, I think, at right. the time as a, as a black woman. Um, but as we'll see later on, Madam C.J. Walker was very successful in large part because she has an incredible mind for business. Like yeah. she's got a, an incredible business mind. And... I don't know that Annie Malone had that same kind of mind because it seemed like she made the mistake of kind of like marketing her products in in the same way that white people marketed their products, which wasn't going to work yeah. with, with a black audience. Totally. Know. Yeah. With the knowledge that she had learned working for the Poro company, Sarah began experimenting at home to develop her own hair care line. In July of 1905, when Sarah was 37, She and her daughter moved to Denver, Colorado, where she found work as a pharmacist in addition to continuing to work for Annie Malone. When she arrived in Colorado, she had just $1.05 in savings in her pocket. Oh my God, that's terrifying. (laughs) It's terrifying. Also, it's inspiring because, I mean, everything about her story is inspiring, but I feel like we are constantly being told that if you are not who you are going to be by the time you're 30, then like throw in the towel. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, oh, you're never going to make it, you know? Oh and my God, she, is that something that I've been having to remind myself so much lately? Don't give in to that. I'm don't not, give I'm it. trying not to let myself, but I am my own worst critic. <laughs> well, and it's not our fault that we feel that way. Like society constantly makes us feel that way. Like they're yeah. always putting out these like 25 under 25 lists and things like that, that are reinforcing this notion that like, your success is more valuable if you achieve it younger, which yeah. is not 
true. Right. Like it's, it's not true. And like, so the fact that she's 37 and is just kind of getting on her feet in terms of like figuring out that she wants to start her own company uh, at the time whenever all the odds were stacked against her and she becomes very successful should be a lesson to us all. Well, I think it's also just good to remember that we're never done becoming who we are. Yes. You know, my mom always talks about the fact that she didn't have me till she was 41. She didn't really find a new career path until 10 years after that. You know, there were times that she feels like she's remolded herself multiple times and I think there is this idea that it's hard for us to see in the future long enough to give ourselves that time and space to be able to keep evolving yeah and I think there's also and I was just having this conversation with someone recently there's also this like sunk cost fallacy that we all have in terms of our own like career growth and goals where we feel like okay, I've been going towards this thing for however many years. And if I decide to pivot and do something else now, I've wasted all those years. Right. And I should just stick to this thing because Which this is, is the thing I've been doing. Which is not true because you've learned valuable lessons from the thing that you've spent all that time doing. Right. And you can take that into your next Never adventure. too late never. To, to decide you want to do something different with no. your life. It's and never too late. And this is a late. great reminder of that. Yeah. yeah. So sources are contradictory as to when and where Sarah met her third husband, Charles Joseph Walker. Uh, some say they met attending church in St. Louis, and some say that the two didn't meet until Sarah had already moved to Denver in 1905. But either way, the two married in 1906, and Sarah would from then on go by the name Madam C.J. Walker. Adopting Madam uh, from women pioneers of the French beauty industry, because that's what they would use. Yeah, Madam. But you're taking your husband's name. Come on. Well, okay. She does talk about that later. Okay. Uh, and it actually does make sense to me why she did it, uh, because at a time when black women weren't respected at all, um, that people wouldn't bother to actually even learn your name. Right. So using the name, like using your husband's name, which for better or worse, especially at this time, being married gave you status. Yeah. And then forcing them to call you madam. I was just going to say madam is a power move. Right. Yeah. It, it gave you some kind of authority, which okay. is what she wanted. She was afraid that people weren't going to take her seriously. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a bomb ass name. I love it. But, it's yes. kinda, it, but it, just, it is her husband's name. And took I, me back a second. I just had to mention it. I hate that. Like, uh, gosh, I had a family member who sent a card in that said Mr. And Mrs. Mr. And Mrs. Anthony Marquez, which I didn't even change my last name. So that's one thing. But two, I, I told you everyone, are not Mrs. Anthony Marquez. I'm not Mrs. Anthony anything. Like, that's not my name. That's not my first name. <laughs> I've, so stop it. You stop know? it. I don't like it. Anyway, uh, she went by Madam. She marketed herself as an independent hairdresser and retailer of cosmetic creams and started selling her products door to door, teaching other black women how to groom and style their hair. Love you know, it. This was an issue. This is an issue we still see. Yes. I mean, I hear people talk about it all the time, including myself, who like... I had black family who would do my hair, but I had a white mother. And even if you don't, even if you come from, a, you know, an entire family of of black people, sometimes you just don't know how to care for your hair. Right. And so many people have said in the modern era that like the natural hair movement and YouTube videos are what taught them how to care for their hair properly. Well, yeah, because I think that there is so much 
um, about black history too that has been passed down through generations. Yes. So it's like you're doing the same hair care that you would do that your great, great, great grandmother probably did. You know what I mean? Because there is so much tied to tradition with hair from what I've learned, you know. Um, So I feel like I can understand how important and vital teaching hair care and self-care for the black community would be so unbelievably important, especially because I would assume that for the most part, it was only ever geared toward white audiences. So to finally have somebody who understands the certain difficulties that you may have with your hair or your skin or things like that and be able to come to you and show you those things is also creating a huge sense of community. Right. And those things can be done like she also gave them permission to do those things for the enjoyment of doing them and, yes. and for self-care ra- rather than it being this thing that was just like, okay, we keep our, our hair braided or we do whatever to protect it because we don't have time to take care of it because we're working, you yeah. know, like we're working all the time or we're doing whatever else. But it's like, how do you want to look? Yeah. yeah. How, how do you, you want to feel? feel? Yeah, exactly. Um, and because she had so many issues with like her own scalp and everything, that was a huge part of her brand, like actually taking care of the skin on your head as yeah. well as the hair on your head. And also what a great example of her own success by showing what her products can do on herself. Yeah. yeah. In 1906, um, she put her daughter in charge of the mail order operation in Denver while she and her husband traveled throughout the southern and eastern United States to expand the business. She developed what was called the Walker System, which was designed to maintain a healthy scalp and help women avoid the hair loss and alopecia that she had suffered through poor hygiene and scalp care. Uh Uh-huh. So the Walker system involved scalp preparation, lotions, and iron combs. Her custom pomade was a wild success, while other products for black hair, largely manufactured by white businesses, still something we see today, were on the market. She differentiated hers by emphasizing its attention to the health of the women who would use it. She's like, we're not here to make a quick buck. We're here to take care of you, right? right? We're here to uplift our community. So she sold her homemade products directly to black women using a personal approach that won her loyal customers. Like she was literally going door to door, which is, again, I think just speaks to her business savvy. After Walker closed the business in Denver in 1907, she moved with her daughter and husband to Pittsburgh, where she opened the Lilia, the Lilia College. Uh, which was a beauty parlor to train and employ a fleet of saleswomen to sell the product whom she called beauty culturalists. So she started basically like a beauty school. Yeah. You know, like in in her salon. Right. To train her own like employees. Her own like Silas or whatever Mm -hmm. to continue because she is but one person. Yeah, she's busy. But when you have a whole staff that can do it, you're going to make more money. Yeah. As an advocate of black women's economic independence, the women trained in the Walker system for her national network were licensed sales agents who earned healthy commissions. So she paid her workers. They And, you know, there weren't a lot of opportunities for black women of to course. be making money. You yeah. Know? At the height of production, the Madam C.J. Walker Company employed over 3,000 people. Wow. Largely black women who sold Walker's products door to door. Alelia, along with her mother, established an office in Harlem as, again, two brilliant businesswomen. They could see that the neighborhood was becoming a center for African-American culture. Right. So um, after Madam C.J. Walker passes away, Alelia continues on, especially in Harlem, and like really rides that Harlem Renaissance wave that happens in the 20s. So, oh, wow. In 1910, 
Walker relocated her business to Indianapolis, where she established the headquarters for the Madam C.J. Walker Manufacturing Company. She initially purchased a house and factory at 640 Northwest Street. Walker later built a factory, hair salon, and beauty school to train her sales agents and added a laboratory to help with research. Damn, she was making money. Yes, yes. Wow. Secure in that bag. Uh, she was she was a Capricorn. That tracks. Tracks. They, they, they are good at making money. Um, <laughs> Damn, I should have gotten with a Capricorn. <laughs> Sarah's husband, Charles, was initially supportive of her business, but as her success and popularity grew, he became bitter and jealous. Of course he did. Ultimately starting an affair and asking Sarah for a divorce in 1912. Allegedly... Like, I got your name, bitch. <laughs> exactly. Allegedly, he asked for his name back. Oh! requesting that Sarah stop going by Madam C.J. Walker, and she refused. She yeah. she built a brand on that name, and she had no intention of changing it. Uh, duh. Yeah. Sarah really understood the power of advertising and brand awareness. Heavy advertising primarily in African-American newspapers and magazines, in addition to her frequent travels to promote her products, helped her... Um, become really well-known all throughout the United States. Right. And if you look at the labels, her labels are really famous as well because she has pictures of herself on, like, the labels. Yeah. So she really was a brand, like, within herself. She was an influencer before there yeah. were influencers. Totally. Um, unlike many other black hair care brands she did not rely on white newspapers or exhibitions to get her product seen she went straight to her people and they loved and embraced her and that was that. the difference between her and what was the woman's name Annie and something, and something. Yeah. yeah I think that that really shows the difference between how she was able to become more successful absolutely I mean we did an episode on black buying power yep. and like really like how much the black community has to offer and I think especially at this time but even now today a lot of black people and this isn't really a criticism but i think a lot of black people in business see becoming successful with white people as being Six, legitimized yes right? you know yeah, yeah yeah being able to kind of like pass in right. those yeah. worlds like that's yeah. what makes the mainstream is being legitimized by white audiences and madam cj walker was, was like, not interested in that no need uh also in 1912 she addressed an annual gathering of the national negro business league from the convention floor, she said this, quote, I am a woman who came from the cotton fields of the South. From there, I was promoted to the wash tub. From there, I was promoted to the cook kitchen. And from there, I promoted myself into the business of manufacturing hair goods and preparations. I have built my own factory on my own ground. Wow. The following year, she addressed convention goers from the podium as a keynote speaker. Though at this point, she was a very, very wealthy woman with multiple grand homes, she continuously reached down to pull others up in her community. By 1917, the company claimed to have trained nearly 20,000 women. Woo! And they were very proud to be like Madam C.J. Walker students. Of course, like they yeah. had uniforms and everything. I love it. Inspired by the model of the National Association of Colored Women, she established clubs for her employees, encouraging them to give back to their communities and rewarding them with bonuses when they did. Wow. At a time when jobs for black women were fairly limited, she promoted female talent, even stipulating in her company's charter that only a woman could serve as president. Wow. She was like, I'm not putting a man in charge of this. Nope. 
The result of the clubs was the establishment of the National Beauty Culturists and Benevolent Association of Madam C.J. Walker Agents. Whoa. Very long. Its first annual conference convened in Philadelphia during the summer of 1917 with 200 attendees. The conference is believed to have been among the first national gatherings of women entrepreneurs to discuss business and commerce in the United States. So. That's huge. I mean, like now we have all of these like women in business. Yeah, you know, yeah. so many like conferences, and it's incredible that the first one was black led, like black yeah. women. You know, she donated generously to educational causes and black charities, funding scholarships for women at Tuskegee Institute, and donating to the NAACP, the Black YMCA, and dozens of other organizations that helped make Black history, as well as hiring within the community at every opportunity possible. When she moved into a new home in New York in 1917, she commissioned Vertner Tandy, the first licensed black architect in New York City, to design it for her. Wow. So just anytime there was an opportunity. And that's the thing, you know, because sometimes I wonder, I'm like, do I want to talk about millionaires, even if it was like a long time ago? Right. But when it comes to her, not only is she, what she accomplished so incredible, but also at every opportunity she reached down to pull somebody up. She was very ethical. Yeah. Yes. As her influence grew, she became more and more vocal regarding politics. She delivered lectures on political, economic, and social issues at conventions sponsored by powerful black institutions. She became friends with the likes of Booker T. Washington, Mary McLeod Bethune, W.E.B. Du Bois, and during World War I, she was a leader in the Circle for Negro War Relief and advocated for the establishment of a training camp for black army officers. Wow. In 1917, she joined the executive committee of the New York chapter of the NAACP, which organized the silent protest parade on New York's Fifth Avenue. The public demonstration drew more than 8,000 African-Americans to protest a riot in East St. Louis that killed 39 African-Americans. Wow. Also in 1917, until her death, she was a member of the Committee of Management of the Harlem YMCA, which she also helped fund to have that built. Yeah, I think I... Did you mention it earlier? Because I remember something about the YMCA. Yeah, yeah. I mentioned that that was one of the, like, many many organizations that she contributed to. really cool. But she also um, was on the committee for the Harlem YMCA, and she, I think, also basically funded to have it built. Right. Um, and, And within the YMCA... Oh... This is the, sorry, this is the YWCA, because I forgot they kept them separate back then. Oh, yes. The YMCA and the YWCA. But she was on the committee for the Harlem YWCA, and she had programs that trained beauty skills for young women at the, at the YWCA. So fun. In 1918, the National Association for Colored Women's Clubs honored her for making the largest individual contribution to help preserve the Frederick Douglass uh, Anacostia House. Before her death in 1919, she pledged $5,000, which is the equivalent of $77,700 in today's money, wow. to the NAACP's anti-lynching fund. At the time, it was the largest gift from an individual that the NAACP had ever received. Wow. 
She also bequeathed nearly $100,000 to orphanages, institutions, and individuals. Her will directed two-thirds of future net profits of her estate to charity. Wow. So she's like, when I go, yeah, like, take, take my money. On May 25th, 1919, Sarah passed away from hypertension in her country home in Irvington on Hudson at the age of 51. Wow. Young. She's young. Yeah. For her, you know, yes. For starting her business at 37 and passing at 51. Yes. It's not a lot of time to become, lot of time. A, become a millionaire because at the time of her death, she was worth approximately $1 million. In that day's money or today's money? That day's money. How much is she worth in today's money? $16 million. Whoa! <laughs> uh, she was the wealthiest African-American woman in America. According to Walker's obituary in the New York Times, quote, she said herself two years ago in 1917 that she was not yet a millionaire, but hoped to be sometime. Not that she wanted the money for herself, but for the good that she could do with it. Yes. Our That's queen. That's story? That's her story. I just love her so much. Oh, wow. What a badass chick. I know, totally. Such a badass chick. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Well... The person I am going to be discussing, I had to double check that we hadn't already done them. <laughs> I, I, I had this, a similar thought today. I, yeah. I, I was like looking at this person and I was like, I don't know if we've done them or not, but I don't want to risk it. And I yeah. don't want to go back through our episodes to find out. Right. So. But I did remember that I covered Sylvia Rivera, where this person was discussed a lot. And this is one of my favorite people. Yes. I wear my Marsha necklace every day. Yes. I think it's beautiful. I'm going to talk about Marsha P. Johnson. We've talked a lot about Marsha, but yes. we haven't covered her specifically. Exactly. Yeah. So I thought that now would be a great time. I think that their story is unbelievable, especially when it comes to the intersections that they cross through and why that makes yes. their story that much more not special, but I guess nuanced, right? Yeah, layered. Layered. 
Marsha was born on August 24th, 1945. She's a Virgo queen. So I Googled it, and this is how Virgos are described. Virgos are usually helpful. They are the first to offer themselves to do favors, and they are very modest people. Hmm. They are hardworking, honest, and reliable. In turn, as a negative note of their personality, they can be judgmental, critical, and fussy. Virgos are Pisces sister sign. Oh. So they're like, for me, I love, love a Virgo. Awesome. I haven't met a Virgo that I didn't love. I think Beyonce is also a Virgo if that gives you like a vibe. Marsha, Beyonce. Mm -hmm. You know what we're talking about. Marsha was born in Elizabeth, New Jersey to Malcolm Michael Sr. and Alberta Claiborne. Their father was an assembly line worker and mother a housemaker. She was raised in the Mount Temin African Methodist Episcopal Church. Yeah, same church or same denomination as Madam C.J. Walker. Same denomination that my family also went to. The Mount Temin African Methodist Episcopal Church? Not not the Mount Temin, but the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Oh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Okay, so this particular church I think is cool because it was the first independent Protestant denomination to be founded by black people growing from the free African society that started from like the anti-slavery movement. Right. I I believe that that's what the African Methodist Episcopal Church is. That's why like so many black people go to an AME church. Yeah. Yeah. When asked about the religious upbringing, Marsha said, I got married to Jesus Christ when I was 16 years old, still in high school. There you go. Yeah, that goes to show you like very religious household. Religion was very important. It's very Um, common. yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, she was very attracted to dresses and more feminine items of clothing she loved to play dress up but being born biologically male Mm -hmm. made it very difficult for her to express themselves in that way especially with the kids in the neighborhood when she would feel you know bold enough to go out in a dress or something like that she would be bullied so badly that it would make her shrink back into a smaller version and where where was elizabeth new jersey new jersey okay yeah a tough, I mean, New Jersey can be like a really tough place. I don't know where Elizabeth is. I don't know but either. But I mean, I think that anytime you're not in a major city where you're not seeing different types of people all the time, whenever you're different, you're a target. And especially within certain cultures. Yes. And like, I can't speak to the neighborhood that she grew up in because every neighborhood is different. But I think also the community that she grew up in, in the church community mm-hmm. and things like that. And especially... Again, I'm not speaking from experience, but just things that I've learned. I know that in black communities that can be, you know, machismo and all that is a very big thing. The black community can be really like a rough place when it comes to like masculinity and things like that. Right. In in my experience being a a woman, but, you know, on the periphery of all of that. So exactly. She was also a victim of rape when she was very young by a 13 year old boy was also brought up a lot of very confusing thoughts about her sexuality and made everything very confusing and she really just felt like like a target in the outside world from what I've read and just not understanding who she was as a child because she wasn't able to explore any of that she said that when she was a kid she thought being gay was some sort of dream rather than something that was actually possible and because of this she says she remained like completely sexually inactive her entire like adolescent years and it wasn't until she moved to New York City that she started exploring her sexuality more. She graduated high school in 1963 and immediately left home for New York City with nothing but $15 and a bag of clothes. 
She moved to Greenwich Village in 1966 and started waiting tables to get by until she met some of these so-called street hustlers near 6th and 8th Street, which changed her life forever. Can I just say, both of these, both of these people, like, how strong... You have to be like, man, I am such a little fraidy cat. Like, I'm so scared of of failure yeah. of like all of these things. And both of these people, like she went to New York City with fifteen dollars. Yeah. Madam CJ Walker started a whole new life in Denver with a dollar and fifty cents but with I a think, daughter. You know, like I it's think so, there's like one desperation to hope. Yes. You know yeah. what I mean? Like hope I think for a better it takes life. desperation to get out of the situation, but hope that once you get there you're going to find something else. And I can imagine for... But still courage as well, because I yeah. get paralyzed by fear, yeah. you know, and it's like... But I think there was also, like, during this time, everyone who was gay moved to Greenwich Village. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? So I think there was, like, sure, this yeah. buzz. If you were on the East Coast, you would go to Greenwich. If you were in San... You know, on the West Coast, you go San to San Francisco, Francisco yeah. you know? So I think there was kind of this, like, call to the misfits to kind of, like, come to that place. Sure. So I'm wondering if there was kind of this, like... I don't know what I'm going to get when I get there, but it's got to be better than where I'm at right now. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. it was then that Marsha felt comfortable coming out as gay and as a quote drag queen because they didn't have the language we have today. Back in the sixties, Marsha identified herself as a gay transvestite as a queen or a street queen. So I did a lot of research as to what the proper pronouns would be to use when referencing Marsha in this episode. And there are a lot of differing accounts because Marsha herself was not alive during the time that transgender was being used. There wasn't as much understanding and education about what that meant. So a lot of people say that Marsha kind of like rode this line of feminine and masculine. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we don't know whether or not she would have identified as trans or not but when I was looking at the Marsha P. Johnson Institute website they did use she pronouns there are also times that that they use they pronouns so I kind of go back and forth throughout my notes between she and they trying to be as respectful as possible but it is kind of difficult when it's someone who's passed away and wasn't able to speak for themselves speak for themselves it's hard to put that on and be respectful to their memory right I think I've always used she because the documentary I watched watched those were the pronouns yeah, that were yeah. used and her friends say she a lot too yeah but you're you're right i mean like uh it's that's tough it is um in the 1972 Out of the Closet Voices of Gay Liberation, Marsha discussed being a street transvestite revolutionary, saying a transvestite is still like a boy, very manly looking, a feminine boy. Distinguishing this from the term transsexual, defining that as those who are on hormones and getting surgery. So it also could have been a something in her mind where she's like, well, I'm not taking hormones and I'm not having surgery done so I must be this and rather I, than I that. I also wonder, you know, because the language and the understanding around gender and orientation and everything is is changing so often. I often wonder, like, if Marsha was alive today, would she consider herself or would they consider themselves gender fluid? Right. And that's right? kind of one of the things that I was researching was whether or not and it's all guesses from people. Yeah, we really. don't know. Like some say that she would probably, they would probably be more gender nonconforming. Some yeah. say that she would probably identify with she pronouns. So I am trying to be respectful of that. Just so you all know, I did do my best to do research on it all. Uh, so I do kind of switch back and forth between she and they pronouns throughout my notes. 
1966, Marsha was living on the streets and engaged in what is called survival sex. Survival sex is different than sex work as it isn't a person's choice necessarily, but a means of survival. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've talked about that many times. We talked about that yeah. with um, with Maya Angelou as mm-hmm. well, where it's like... It wasn't it, an empowering thing. It right. was a, a means to an end And to it survive. is a choice that you made, but it's a choice that you made under duress, basically. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Marsha claimed to have been arrested over a hundred times for sex work and shot once in the late seventies for it as well. When they were establishing their persona, Marsha changed their name repeatedly from their given name to black Marsha to eventually deciding on Marsha P. Johnson. Now Johnson was the name of a restaurant called Howard Johnson's on 42nd street. And do you remember what the P stands for in Marsha P. Johnson? Oh gosh. I know we've talked about this like, several times but it's eluding me at the moment okay so the p stood for pay it no mind oh yeah oh i know right a phrase she used oozing with sarcasm when asked about her gender once she used the phrase on a judge who was so charmed by it she was released I mean, from what I saw, so gosh, I can't remember the name of the documentary. It w- was it the Death and Life of Martha? Yes, yeah, oh, I talk about it a little so bit. So good, it's, it's so good. Oh my gosh, watch it! It's on please, Netflix. It's please so watch good. it. It's so good. Um, but you can really tell that she's so charming, like so charismatic. And, oh my like, god, charming. so flirty. Yeah, like like ser- like she the way she talks is very like oh darling flirty. I like, want that kind of charisma. Like right? that's the kind of charisma I want to have. I want to yeah. have that kind of like magnetic energy where people just like love being around you. And like she's snarky and sarcastic, but like in a way that makes you want to talk to her. It yes. doesn't like deter you from yeah. her. You mm-hmm. know, oh so cool. So Marsha's style of drag was not serious, high, or show drag like, you know, we would see today or a lot like when I covered Stormy Delavery where she, you know, was in the, you know, the, the nice suits and the hair and makeup was done and all of that where Marsha couldn't afford the same costumes and makeup and things like that. She would often have to sleep under the tables in the flower district of New York, and she would collect the leftover flowers that were left at the end of the day and fashion them into elaborate flower crowns. And that is one of the things that she's most known for. So on my necklace, it's the Mm -hmm. infamous picture of her wearing one of those flower crowns. Marsha was tall and slender and loved to dress in flowing robes and sparkling dresses. She rocked red plastic heels and bright wigs, drawing attention from those passing by. Writer for The Village Voice, Edmund White, wrote in 1979 that Marsha liked dressing in ways that displayed the interstice between masculine and feminine. She did perform high drag a few times, but mostly performed with grassroots political and comedic groups. They sound more fun to me anyways. She sang and performed with Jay Camicia's international drag performance troupe Hot Peaches from 1972 to the 1990s. She also joined an extension of the San Francisco Cockettes, best name ever, <laughs> the Angels of Light. I love that. Right? That's hilarious. <laughs> Her street cred had raised enough in the city by 1975 that Andy Warhol photographed her as part of a Ladies and Gentlemen series he created. While their performance career was a huge part of Marsha's life, her passion for bettering her community was even larger. Marsha was one of the early patrons of the Stonewall Inn in Greenwich Village once the mafia took over in 1966 and they began allowing women and drag queens inside, as it was previously a bar exclusively for gay men and probably just 
white gay men. And we discussed this mm-hmm. at length in our Stonewall episode. Yeah. So for more information, revert back to that. Yeah. Spoiler alert. We're not pro mafia. No. Okay. <laughs> like, well, no. And the mafia was shit. Like they absolutely they held them on such a tight leash, like make one mistake. And we're like calling the cops. Yeah. I you know what I mean? It's, it's such an interesting dynamic because you're like, Wow, how altruistic of the mob to allow these people a place where they could <laughs> no, gather. No, they helped but it's each like, other. They helped each other because they were both kind of like the unwanted ones, well, you know? And, and they, yes, they definitely, they saw a market yeah. where that they could fill and, and make they took money. Advantage. Yeah, yeah, and exactly. that's what happened there. So as you may remember in our telling of the Stonewall Uprising, there are various accounts of Marsha's participation during the events. A lot of people like to say Marsha was the first one to throw a brick. She herself says she didn't show up till 2 a.m. and the riots had already begun. We discussed Stormy DeLavery, who allegedly Mm -hmm. did start the fight, but maybe she didn't. There's so many (laughs) differing events of what actually happened because I think it was pure fucking chaos. Chaos, definitely, yeah. So I think there is a lot of importance put on Marsha for being the one who started the uprising, thinking that that would make, thinking that made their contribution more important. But I don't care if Marsha started it or if they were there. I care about what they stood for amid the gay liberation movement growing around her. To me, Stonewall did nothing for people like Marsha and white cis gay men had more of a privilege as activists than Marsha did as a black gender nonconforming person in the 1960s. I wrote that out in my notes. I had to read it word for word what yeah. I said because I think that there is so much importance put on yes. whether or not she started it or did this thing or whatever because then that was somehow make her more iconic when I don't think that's the case right and people get very defensive if you even bring up that maybe she wasn't the person who started it but, but that's cares? not the point that's yeah. not the point yeah. exactly and I think that we have to stop looking at what started the event and what came out of that uprising right. is what was truly monumental Marsha joined the Gay Liberation Front after the uprising and was active in their drag queen. I keep saying drag like a Minnesotan. Drag Drag queen caucus. Maybe because I'm tired, my Minnesotan is coming out. Marsha and another past feminist fave, Sylvia Rivera, co-founded the Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries, or STAR, in 1970. And this was something that I don't know if it was super common before this time or if it just kind of like reached another height afterwards. But if you've watched a show like Pose, you understand like the house mother yeah. mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, they do the drag shows or, you know, they're there to help feed, clothe, house. Yeah. Don't they're quote there me on for this, emotional support. But I do think it happened like slightly after like in. It seems like, the to next me like so. Star was one of the first places to do this but I didn't want to say that and be wrong right Um, but that's kind of what it seems like to me because while Marsha and Sylvia weren't drag mothers they didn't do shows with their kids they took in um, homeless LGBTQIA youth or people or just anyone that really needed help and care and like these two women were working in sex work and other ways of making money not just to get by for themselves but to start this whole thing and to take care of all of their children right yeah you know they didn't I mean? want people to have to go through what they went through exactly and sylvia rivera is one of those people who just thinking about them makes me want to cry yeah you know just because i'm just like oh a soul that's just too like just too 
precious for this world yeah. do you know what i mean and when almost I think too about, fragile yes too. I, that's what i wanted to say but i didn't want to i didn't want it to sound like condescending yeah but no like, because she's incredibly strong yes that's the thing yes. she is incredibly strong but i want to take care of her fi- exactly. every time i see i see an image of her because she was just so passionate and she believed really strongly and it's almost like she had this it was thing the where, vulnerability yeah and it's yeah. almost like she had this thing where she couldn't understand why everyone was being so cruel. Yes. Like she just didn't like, because she is so pure in a lot yeah. of ways. And you know? I think that Marsha was the perfect counterpoint to Sylvia because I think Marsha truly had more of a fuck you. I'm doing this. Yeah. I am strong. I am powerful. We're getting this done. I want my gay rights now. Motherfuckers yes. kind of person yeah. where I think Sylvia very much was too, but I think that their personalities really complemented each yeah. other. And it's funny that we're mentioning this because Sylvia actually wanted Marsha to be the president of star, but apparently Marsha responded that Sylvia was better with long-term planning and thought in a more linear manner. So she would be better as president, but she was flattered. <laughs> Oh, I love someone who knows when to let others shine, you know, agree, agree. And, you know, it's funny because it's like Virgos are always considered to be like pretty like well organized. You'd think they'd want to take charge. Yeah. But they're also good at recognizing like like this is not my thing. It's actually. important. You know, that is a very yeah, important like, thing to be able to recognize I'm, in yourself. I'm, I'm going to be better somewhere else. Put and me somewhere say, else you Sylvia, know? you're going to rock at this. Yes. You take care of yes. that. Right. Star is described as a radical political collective that also provided housing and support to homeless LGBTQIA youth and sex workers in lower Manhattan. As we were talking about just in the discussions, both Sylvia and Marsha experienced a lot of homelessness in their lives and they wanted to help the next generation um, live better lives than they did. Sylvia said Star was for street people, the street homeless people and anybody that needed help at the time. So like I said before, Marsha and Sylvia funded the organization themselves largely through sex work, but they took care of star members like their own children and worked to help provide for them and give them the love and support they need. Their next step was actually acquiring a home for star. Marsha and Sylvia would sneak kids into their hotel rooms before they got a home to be able to give them a nice place to sleep. I got to tell you, you know, having been trying to start an organization for the last couple of years it's hard yeah like it is so difficult to just if you don't know what you're doing and you're just kind of trying to fill your way and they have no money yeah and yeah no resources yes and no help and you're just trying to like fill your way around it is so difficult i cannot imagine them trying are, to make strides their mama hen's looking at all their and, babies and they being, are and and i think yeah. that was their motivation is like they were almost like at that point already like the older generation already a little bit yes. even though they weren't that old i think they had this like feeling of like no I have to care for others and that was enough for them to be like we don't have shit but we gotta do something but we're gonna figure it out like as, as we, we go. go and yeah. that is it's so admirable yeah. yeah the gay liberation fund and star hosted a fundraising dance in November of 1970 raising enough money for the star house a four bedroom apartment in a rundown building at at 213 East 2nd Street in the East Village. There was no electricity and no heat, but Marsha and Sylvia put in the work to repair it themselves. However, as much as they wanted to make Star work, the doors closed in 1971. Marsha and Sylvia, though, were now an activist duo ready to continue their work. They were often seen at marches and other political demonstrations for their community. 
1973, Pride March organizers banned drag queens from participating as they believed that drag queens were making them look bad. Mm. In response, in a very, very famous video, you can see Sylvia Rivera yes. give that speech. I talk about it in that Feminist Faves episode. It is so unbelievably moving. It's raw. Like, that. the thing about it is, it's like... It's like you've the, seen it's clipping like all the audio is clipping because she is like yelling so loud right. and passionately. And like you can you can watch more eloquent speeches, right? Like you yeah. can see more articulate speakers, but it's not about that. It's about like this is someone who is passionate about what they're talking about. And fucking pissed off because right. she's like, I want to be a part of this, too. And now you're telling me I can't be. And she's hurt. And you can like see it. It's like just, I started this shit. Yeah. I was there the night this started. Now you're telling me I can't be a part of it. Yeah. Fuck you. And Marsha felt the same way. There was a reporter there, obviously, that was interviewing and taking video and all of that at this event. And when a reporter asked her about what they were demonstrating, Marsha responded, Darling, I want my gay rights now. Mm -hmm. Yes, you do. Marsha, as you can probably tell by now, was one tough cookie. She was once confronted by the police when hustling in the city. When they attempted to arrest her, Marsha hit them with a handbag, which contained two bricks. At a girl. At a girl. <laughs> when the judge asked her to explain the hustling, Marsha claimed that she was trying to secure enough money for her husband's tombstone. There was no husband. Um, <laughs> and the judge didn't know this. So the judge was like, okay, gay marriage is illegal. Like, what's going on? Bold, though. I love it. Right? So, like, bold face lies. So the judge goes, what happened to this alleged husband? And Marsha goes, a pig shot him. <laughs> right? <laughs> so she was... She's just bold, A-cab, A-cab right? all day. I'm going to hit you with my purse. <laughs> and then make up a husband and say he got shot by a cop. Fuck you. So she was sentenced to 90 days in prison for the assault, but their lawyers got them into a hospital instead. But honestly, I don't know what would be much better because to this day, if you are trans, there is a very good chance that you would be put in prison with people who are of the same biological sex as you, but not in the same gender mm -hmm. as you necessarily. Yeah. So I don't know necessarily if a hospital would have been wonderful for a trans person either, but maybe slightly better than a prison. I don't know. Marsha's mental health began to deteriorate in the late 1970s. She herself called it a breakdown, and according to friends at the time, they would see her walking down Christopher Street naked, and they would take her away for a few months to be treated with chlorpromazine, chlorpromazine, an antipsychotic. And I mean, then she would come back, and then it would happen again, and then she'd have to go back and get treatment, and then it would happen again. So she I don't want to speak to her mental state, or I can't speak to any diagnoses she may or may not have had, but... Honestly, you've lived through a lot of yeah. trauma and like difficult life. Yeah, it's not it's not like crazy that that happened to her. It's not surprising that like you would, I mean, have a bit of a break. Yeah, because she's still not living comfortably. She's still working really hard just to survive every single day. I Mentally mean, exhausting. That is exhausting. It doesn't surprise me at all. In 1980, she moved in with her friend Randy Wicker after he invited her to stay the night on a particularly cold evening. According to Randy, he invited her in and she never left. <laughs> Randy in himself is an amazing activist and was one of the most prominent gay activists at the time. So the two of them being roommates was like pretty badass. 
Randy's partner, David, was diagnosed with AIDS during this time, and Marsha stepped in as his caregiver. Marsha was also HIV positive, and after witnessing what was happening to David and after visiting friends with the virus in the hospital, Marsha became dedicated to sitting with the sick and dying, as well as doing street activism with AIDS activist group ACT UP. During this time in their lives, they turned back to religion. They would often light candles and pray in the Catholic Church nearby. When asked why she practiced Catholicism in 1992, they said, because the Catholic religion is part of the Santeria of the Saints, which says that we are all brothers and sisters in Christ. Religion was deeply personal to them as well. They had a private altar in their home and would make small offerings to the saints and spirits. Marsha's friend Sasha once said, I would find her in the strangest churches. She'd be wearing velvet and throwing glitter. <laughs> That's how I want to go to church. A hundred percent. I'd love to worship. There's glitter involved. And I'm, I'm, I'm in. <laughs> they participated in the Interfaith AIDS Memorial Service at the Church of St. Veronica in the summer of 1991. Violence against the LGBTQIA community was extremely high in New York City in the 80s and into the 90s during and after the AIDS epidemic. According to Matt Foreman, director of the Anti-Violence Project, in 1992, 1,300 reports of bias crime against the gay community were reported. Thanks, Reagan. Right. By the way, I mean, we had an, a whole episode on that, but yep. I mean, people... It's been proven time and time again. We've seen it recently. You know, we had an entire episode on AAPI, like, hate that spiked recently. Um, When people are scared, they They get violent. violent. Yeah. And 18% of those 1,300 crimes were perpetrated by police. In response, marches were organized, and Marsha was right there for all of them. Shortly after the Pride Parade in 1992, Marsha's body was discovered in the Hudson River. I'm sorry to make such a fast left turn. Yeah, but, but that's, that's how what it happened. happened. Yeah. Um, so her body was discovered in the Hudson River and the police ruled the death a suicide, which immediately enraged Marsha's friends and other members of the local community as they knew Marsha wasn't suicidal. Yes, she had mental health struggles, but it had never manifested itself in suicidal ideation. And this also, correct me if I'm wrong, does seem to be like a time in her life when things were starting to get a little bit more stable. It's like you're living with someone. Yeah, she had been living with, um, well, she moved in with Randy in 1980. This is 1992. That's 12 years. Yeah. You know, it's more more stability, though. It's like you found religion, like you've got some stabilizing forces in your life. Not to say that she still had all of her other activist work that she was doing. And that's one thing that Sylvia is quoted saying as well, that she knows Marsha didn't commit suicide because they had agreed to, quote, cross the Hudson together. It was something like that, where like if they were going to go, it was going to be, they're together. They're they're not going to leave each other, you know? So Sylvia, that was enough reason for her to be like, she did not end her own life. And everybody in the community, all the other activists were enraged that the police would treat this icon like just some throwaway nobody and not have any sort of investigation or anything, especially because it was noted that there was a massive wound on the back of Marsha's head inconsistent with a self-inflicted injury. 
Marsha was incredibly visible in the LGBTQ community and definitely noticed by police many times in the past. They had also been speaking out against, quote, dirty cops and elements of organized crime that some believe may have painted an even larger target on her back. Marsha was cremated and following a service at a local church and marched down 7th Avenue, friends released Marsha's remains into the Hudson River off the Christopher Street Piers, which if anybody knows the history of the Christopher Street Piers is where a lot of sex work happens for the drag queens or the street queens or whatever they called themselves at the time. So it was a very important location for Marsha's life. After the funeral, a series of demonstrations and marches took place demanding justice for Marsha. In 2002, a police investigation led to reclassifying the cause of death from suicide to undetermined, thanks to activist Mariah Lopez, who put pressure on the police department to reopen the case. The case was reopened once again in 2016, and access was gained to previously unreleased documents and witness statements. This was put toward a documentary that we mentioned, the 2017 documentary, The Death and Life of Marsha P. Johnson, which is absolutely an important watch and yeah, stunning. Yes, Very, yes. I would it. highly recommend watching that. In 2019, it was announced that Marsha and Sylvia would be honored with monuments in Greenwich Village near the Stonewall Inn. These monuments would be the world's first to honor trans activists. Most importantly, her activism continues today through the Marsha P. Johnson Institute. And the Marsha P. Johnson Institute also has not just an importance on the trans community, the gender nonconforming community, and the whole LGBTQIA community, but it also holds a lot of importance at the intersections between the gay community and the black community and how mm -hmm. they can support people like Marsha. And this is what it says on their about page on their website. So much of our understanding of Marsha came from the accounts of people who did not look like or come from the same place as her. As transness is now more accessible to the world, introducing the Institute to black trans people who are resisting, grappling with survival and looking for community has become a clear need. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's something, you know, we talked about her charisma and her charm, but also despite like very difficult circumstances, she was confident as well. Like she, was she knew very, who she was. She, and she was unafraid. And I think she also, she knew who she was and she knew the trouble she was getting into and she was okay with that. Yeah. Like yeah. I think that a lot of these people who put themselves into positions of not being afraid of retaliation do end up passing too early or yeah. having awful things like this happen to them. I do not believe it was a suicide. No, I definitely no. believe that Honestly, I don't even believe that it was a random act of violence. I truly believe that there is something higher up. I believe in some sort of conspiracy, especially because Marsha was such a prominent and like vocal vocal. But yeah. like she was actually getting shit done. Like yeah. I think she was seen as a threat. Yeah. And especially that mouth of hers. <laughs> the cops were like, we sure. got it, you yeah. know? And that's why we love her, you oh, know? I know. She's, I know. She's, an, I mean, honestly, it's like St. Marcia. Like, she's yeah. an icon to that degree, yeah. you know? And to me, like, it's funny because I've been obsessed with Marcia really since I learned about Sylvia Rivera as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that it might seem strange as a cisgendered white woman to be so in love with Marsha P. Johnson. But I think that what draws me to her is that 
unabashed feeling of having to be yourself 100% of the time. Uh-huh. And I relate to that. Yes. Hardcore. Oh, I mean, it's it's goals. <laughs> it I mean, is. I think as you get older, you realize how valuable that is, like how priceless that is. And the um, fact that she could come from something that was so stifling and bullying and horrible and turn it into something that was so beautiful and iconic and actually changed the world forever is yeah. unbelievable to yeah. me. Yeah, I mean, it is, it is interesting. Like there are certain people you see... And, you know, if you, if you ever watch that documentary and you actually, like, see Marsha P. Johnson, like, there are certain people that you see who just have it. You know what I mean? And, like, that's such a cringy thing to say. A lot of times people are like, the X factor no, or it or whatever. But, you know... But, um, like, she has it, whatever that is. Because she did. it's it's There's something that I feel like everybody can relate to and be drawn to about who she was and well, it's that RuPaul, authenticity RuPaul credits his career to Marsha like yeah. that was his inspiration that comedic campy funny out there loud big plastic heels wigs like Marsha was RuPaul's inspiration and I think that that's like a perfect example of like who a Marsha kind of would be today with that loud out there in yeah. your face and yeah. if Marsha were alive today Yes. She would be that famous. Absolutely. I she mean, would be everywhere. Absolutely. The world, it, and it's it's hard and it's sad to say it in this way, but like the world needed Marsha when Marsha was Marsha. But if she had been allowed to, if she'd existed now or if she had existed in another time, whenever um, she could have been more accepted, like she could have just blown like she would have ruled the world you know like exactly. that's her vibe exactly for sure. like and if she was yeah. ever given the chance when she was alive she would have done it yeah. you know yeah oh my heart oh so good so many good feelings this episode oh. i hope that you all really enjoyed this i love that we did two kind of prominent people like icons yeah that people might not really know their whole stories or anything like yeah. that um if there are any feminist faves that you want us to cover in the future we've gotten a few recently that are wonderful and we always need suggestions for these so go ahead and email us at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or dm us on our instagram at angry neighborhood feminist before i forget i want to remind you all again that we have black history month merch so if you're interested in that you can go to the link in our bio in our instagram page or go to the show notes and click on the link there and if you can't find it for whatever reason and you're interested in at least taking a look at it you can email us yeah we'll send you we'll send you the link yeah (laughs) we're so nice (laughs) all right you can also follow us on facebook we have a business and group page you can rate and review us on the business page and chat with the other listeners on the group page last but certainly not least the best way that you can support us on this whole journey is by leaving us a positive five-star review on apple Podcasts. so leave us five stars and a quick sentence about why you enjoy the show and we will be forever your best friends all right with all that being said we encourage you Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.